Well, how's everybody doing? I already feel great because <clears throat> there's roses strewn about the stage, and I've never been to an opera, but I've heard if the, like, the performance is really, really good, they just throw roses. So, ladies, if you feel inclined after this message, just, just go hock them up. No, just kidding. Those are for you. But uh, no, it's an awesome day to, to be able to celebrate this. We're, something glitched out with the booth there. Um, the first part of that video you see, it was a, a testimony that we're going to actually play next week for you. Uh, Brian Hartland is uh, our bassist on stage. He first came to church, uh, uh, well, I, I don't know how many years ago now, maybe like eight or something years ago. Um, and yeah, you'll want to check out that testimony. We had BJ's testimony, I think, in the, in the new year. And our heart is to just release more and more of these testimonies. Uh, some of the most powerful things that God can do is not maybe sharing a preach from up the front here, but just hearing about how God has changed someone's life. So next Saturday, just go online, uh, go to our social media. You'll see it there. Please share it. Please like us, like it. That will help it go and reach the people who really need it, who are outside these walls. And then you heard there, there's going to be uh, just a youth social night uh, in the coming weeks where we're going to invite sort of the next grade that's coming up to our Friday night youth. That's grade seven. So if you've got kids or you're here and you're in grade seven, uh, come along in, I think, three weeks to our Friday night. And we would love to introduce you and just to do a crazy uh, night uh, with the youth crew. Awesome. So Mother's Day is awesome, and I love that, that video uh, that, that uh, the guys, the media team made. You always hear about it, you know, like, oh, we're planning a video, they're going to say some things, and you're going to be like, oh, it's cool, it's going to be the same thing every year. But no matter what, like, it always just tugs at the heartstrings of like, oh, wow, wow, mums are really awesome. And I love the, the different things that all get mentioned there as well. I love the part about cooking. Uh, my mum, she might be watching this, but I don't think she'll be offended if, she's, she, if I'd say she's not the best cook in the world. Um, she's maybe not winning a Michelin star anytime soon, but there's something so special about going home and have your mum love on you with food. And mums love on us in so many different ways as well. Uh, you know, they birthed us, uh, they encouraged us through the years, maybe they gave us cash, that was really great, thanks mum, uh, perfect. And so many, so many things that they did. But again, the thing that makes all the difference with a mother is not the task that they do. It's not the list of things that we think about as we, as, we, as we look at them and we think, okay, it's not the list of things that they've done. It's the heart behind it all. Someone could cook for me the exact same meal as the thing that my mum prepared, but because it came from a place from the deep, deep set heart, because she loves me, there's something in that meal that is untangible to just the ingredients that are on the plate. Would you agree? Who here knows their favorite meal that their mum prepared for them? When you get to go home and you say, mum, that's great, but this is the one that I like. For me, it was spaghetti and meat sauce. On my birthday, mum would always cook that, then there was the, her cake. Again, it wasn't the best cake in the world, but it was her cake. It was perfect. My mum's great, but the meat was always burnt on one side, and, 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 uh, and that would be the side served down on your dinner plate. My mum is the hardest working woman you've ever met. She runs a daycare out of the house, so there's kids there, and she's cooking food for us, for her kids, her four kids, while she's got six other kids running around uh, being crazy. So that's, that's why, but it's awesome. Again, it's not the task that we appreciate, it's the heart. 
And as we were thinking about today, and not actually going to the, to the scripture where we're going today, because of Mother's Day, we don't sort of take our direction from the culture in terms of what we're going to preach. But it does actually line up fantastically with where I felt God uh, wanted to push us in today. And in fact, in our eldership team, it kind of lines up that, you know, really God wants us to examine the heart in this next season. You know, we talk at length sometimes about, you know, what it means to be a Christian, Christian teaching, Christian doctrine, Christian values, Christian theology, uh, how we interact and don't interact with culture, you know, what is right and what is wrong. But behind all of that, and I think as a church, we recognize that, hey, actually, we, we, we know a lot of the things. We know a lot of the task. We know a lot of what we're supposed to do. But again, what is the heart behind each one of those tasks? And maybe today, if we do go down that road, as we think about it, it might suffer to, it might, uh, to bring us into somewhat of an introduction here. We need to see the heart behind every work. And when we let God truly examine us, he's not ultimately looking at the specific task that we have carried out or what we think in our heads. He's looking at who we are which is our heart. You know, in English, we know when we use the word heart that in that word heart is wrapped up so much more meaning than just a bodily organ. It's character, it's feeling, it's your core, it's love, it's nature, it's compassion, sympathy, intimacy, it's the true intentions of who you are at its core. How is your heart? And the Hebrew Bible is no different. The Hebrew word for heart is lev. And it also carries a rich definition and significance, maybe even more significance than the English definition of love because there's eternal part of the heart as well. In some of the dictionaries, it says literally, from the Bible, it says literally the word heart in the Bible refers to the middle of something and it connotes the essence of, of that which is the center of someone. The heart is the center of not only the spiritual activity of a person, but also all the operations of a human life. Heart and soul are often used interchangeably. The heart is the home of the person. The heart is the seat of the conscience, which starts out broken and turned against God. And only by God can the heart be turned back to God and made alive again. We shouldn't be surprised then when we read time and time again throughout Scripture this word heart coming up. Again, it's not just a bodily organ, but it's a thing that defines the very persons that we are. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's important. And in Proverbs 27, 19, it says, As in, the, as in water, your face reflects your face, so the heart of man reflects the man. Or how I think of that, that interpretation, or the heart of man is the man. Really, the story of the whole Bible is the story of God and how the human heart wanders and wrestles and goes in and out of God's presence and what it would take to get a screwed up, messed up, broken-hearted version of man back to life with God. The story of the Bible is how to fix the human heart and to make him right with God. And in one story that we're going to turn to today, we're going we're to go in and out of 1 Samuel and the Psalms. 
But in the story that we're going to look at today, the heart was so important to God over his people, where the Old Testament God was working and guiding his people, the Jewish people, that he would set up and tear down entire kingdoms because of the issues in one person's heart. In the book of 1 Samuel, we find a king by the name of Saul. The people had pleaded to God to give them a physical king because they thought all the other nations were really, really cool. It's like, look at that king. He's so cool. Look at that king. Look at his teeth. It's so great. Um, They wanted a king of beauty and stature and strength, a representation, maybe a mascot of who they felt like they were as a people. God eventually commissioned Samuel to say, give them a king, and his name was Saul. But Saul, if you know anything about him, Old Testament Saul, he had deep, deep character flaws. And through the book of Samuel and 1 Samuel 13, we reach Samuel and Saul at a point in time where Samuel is sent to Saul because he has gone too far. He has stepped way over the line. Now God has to deal with him in the strongest of ways because of his heart. And in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, it says, But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his, his, his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be the prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord had commanded you. Basically, King Saul, you have lost your heart. It no longer belongs to God. And God is now seeking someone with his heart to replace you. Happy days, right, for Saul. Can you imagine how you, someone coming up to you makes, makes you feel if they say that to you? And God ends up directing the prophet Samuel to a family led by a father called Jesse with probably more than a normal amount of sons. We know there's at least seven or eight are accounted for. And if you know the story, in 1 Samuel 16, he goes to the family, a shepherding family, and he talks to them, and, he, and, and Samuel knows that somewhere amongst the sons, there is someone who God wants to bring about, about to be the next king of Israel. In 1 Samuel 16, it says, When they came, he looked on Eleb and thought, this was the oldest son, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Samuel looked at this gorgeous eldest boy and said, wow, this must be the one. This is the obvious one. He's, he's beautiful like Saul. He's tall like Saul. He's handsome. He's got all the charisma you need to be a king. But in verse 7 it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not, man, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance... But the Lord looks at the heart. Son by son, they go down the list until later in verse 11. It says, Then Samuel said to Jesse, Okay, are all your sons here? God doesn't seem to like any of them. Sorry, sons. Um, And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he's out keeping the sheep. They didn't even bother to bring him back for the king selection. I'm the youngest boy, and sometimes I feel like that sometimes, left out of family things. But my mother loves me the most, so that makes up for it. And Samuel said to Jesse... Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent for him and brought him in. And now he was ruddy and beautiful eyes, and he was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Samuel, we don't know. He was between sort of the age of 8 and 15 when this happened. We just know that he was an adolescent young boy. He was the youngest boy in that family. Can you imagine God commissioning you at that young of an age? 
And perhaps that is happening today for our young people. I want to encourage you, young people, if you're hearing this message or in this room or if it gets back to them later, that God actually wants to set a commission out on our young people well before we think they're ready for a commission. God is doing something because God sees the heart. He sees the heart of young children, even as they stand amongst us today. So we agree that this heart must have been pretty damn special. Sorry, that was a bad word. It's not, not bad where I come from. We just came back from vacation, so there you go. Pretty darn special. <laughs> I don't think it's that bad anymore. But I and in the New Testament, in Acts 13, it talks about David. It talks about him re-emphasizing the fact that David, the son of Jesse, was a man after his heart who would do all that he, that, that all in God's will. And if you know anything about the story, maybe you've caught up with it in your Bible reading this year, but what follows that commissioning wasn't a quick transition of, from one king to another king. King David didn't become king in his adolescent years right after the oil was poured on him by Samuel. Instead, he was invited in, and slowly through the next 15 years, there was this battle, and there was this rising jealousy between the previous king, Saul, and the new king. The new king was terribly, terribly uh, embarrassed and jealous of David's heart and the favor that he carried with God. And it eventually led David to run into the wilderness. He had to flee for his life because it eventually got to the stage where Saul was going to kill him. Because with everything in his might, Saul wanted to hang on to what God gave him in the natural. David, at many points during his journey during his hiding in the wilderness, as select people came around him, and God was, God was with him in that time. A lot of our psalms that we have in the Bible, which are sort of poetry written to God, come from that time when David was on the run for his life, waiting and trusting God for the coming inheritance. There were many times, a couple of times, where, where David could have taken the shortcut, and David actually could have killed Saul himself. But instead... In the humility that he had in his heart, he waited and waited. Fifteen years is a long time. He waited and waited until eventually Saul was killed out on the battlefield. And eventually after that, David gets to take the throne as was prophesied, as was anointed those years before. And our main text that we're going to be in today is Psalm 139. If you've got your Bible, um, I do encourage you to bring a physical version of the Bible with you. It's just something about, actually, I forgot my Bible today, so uh, joke's on me. Um, but bring your Bible, something about reading it there in Scripture. You can go back to it later uh, in the day or in the week as God brings you to remembrance of these things. But in Psalm 139, we find David as sort of this high point. It seemed like all things were working out. Everything was right on course. Things were going to be okay. And David sits down to put into words about how God has been so good to him. And in it is the main meat for us today. David starts off with four sort of truths, I think, wrapped up in these different verses about what got him to the place where he is today. What got him to the place that he, that his heart was connected with God. And as we read this Psalm 139, I want you to know that this isn't just lyrics on a sheet of paper for David as he writes these things. Sometimes you might write a song or you might write a story and it's, it's sort of um, 
truth that you know from a textbook. I know God is good. I know God will look after me. I know God will heal me. I know all these things. We, we sort of look at the, the mathematical truths of God and his definition. But for David, the richness in our Psalm 139 is it wasn't belief, which is sort, more sort of theoretical. It was hardcore experiential knowledge. He knew all of these things about God. I remember working on my car, and I'm, I know that I'd just driven it, and I'd taken the wheels off to work on the brakes, and I knew that the brakes would be hot. But as I touched the brakes, and I instantly got burned, that white burning on your skin that only happens when something's really, really hot, I went from believing that my brakes might be hot to really knowing that my brakes might be hot. Again, with the mothers in the room, I remember the process that we went through when we had our first kids. You, you can theoretically know what it means to be a parent or a mother, but there's something else that happens when you know what it's like to be a mother, when you experience those things. And so what we read here today is a journey of 15 years of God redeeming David and bringing him to this point. And he says this in verse 1, and the first truth that David points out to us is God knows me. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high and I cannot attain it. The second passage in here, he highlights that God not just knows me, but God is with me. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shield, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the ocean, you are there. Even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall uphold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light shall be as night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day to you, for darkness is as light with you. The third experiential truth he highlights was God created me. Mothers, you formed me in my, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in the secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. And he finishes with this truth before moving on. He says, and God knows my path. In verse 16, he says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Can you imagine knowing such deep truth in your life? Perhaps some of us really echo with some of those verses to say that I know, that I know, that I know that God rescued me from that thing. Therefore, he is good. For David, as he penned this psalm, at the high point of his kingly career, at the commissioning, it was impossible for him not to worship. And in the next two verses in 17, he turns from talking about God in a factual way to talking in this next part, how precious are your thoughts to me, O God? How fast is the sum of them? 
I will count them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. And then there's a second overflow. Is you can't have that relationship with God without overflowing into worship and overflowing into seeing God's justice. He says this harsh words, but kingdoms were a lot different back then. There were enemies outside the very gates. He says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. We could do a whole sermon series, maybe we should someday, on the four truths and the two overflows out of those four truths. Not to mention all the truths within the truth. And that's where I started today. I started today, God, God wanted me to talk about, I felt, Psalm 139. I thought I was just going to go through the psalm and just say how good, good God is. A nice, encouraging Mother's Day sermon. Wouldn't that be great? But actually, as we reach the end of this psalm, I felt God say, actually, the key here is not all the great things about God. The key here is what happens at the end. From verse 23 and 24, and if you have it, look at this. David says, as he comes to the end of this song, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there is any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Today, our question is, how did King David have such a heart after God? If heart is key to God, if heart is key in kingmaking and in leadership, if, a pure, if the pure of heart are going to be the ones who get to see God, if the heart is the true reflection of the inner man or inner woman, and if God is longing for people who have a heart after him, the question for us this morning, church, is how did David get this heart? Or how do we imitate his heart? And the key is search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We notice here that the beginning of this psalm reflects the end of this psalm. And that's what stood out to me. At the beginning of the psalm, David begins like this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. It's a beautiful thing, but it's a fairly obvious thing to say. If you believe in God here today, you probably realize that he probably knows everything about you. If we believe in a God that, does, uh, that is omnipresent and that knows everything, that could, can see the days before they come, like the, like the rest of these verses um, say, then we know, obviously, that God knows everything about us, that he searched us, that he really, truly knows us better than we know ourselves. So then the question as well for us here this morning is, if that is true, why does David end the psalm saying, search me, O God, and know my heart? The reason I believe, just as I've been meditating on this, is that this is a circular pattern that leads us to relationship with God, soft hearts that are like King David's. 
He's emphasizing that as soon as he gets to the bottom of, of saying all the truths about God, about being about God's worship and about God's justice, that again, David quickly needs to come back and say, even with all of that truth, even though I'm so close to you, God, even though that you said that I have a heart that is after you, I need you to look at my heart again. Even King David, when he made it, knew he never made it. He knew that he never needed to stop working. He knew that his sort of salvation was not over. It was an ongoing process. It was an ongoing journey to have relationship with God. So five things that I think God wants to highlight, and it's just the obvious things in these last two verses. The first thing that David highlights is search me. And I think on one hand, I was thinking, okay, why does, why does David say search me? Why does, he, why does he emphasize that? Like God could just know us. God doesn't have to search for us. He, he just knows. I think in one sense, maybe David used that word search me because he was, he was lost for such a long time in the wilderness. Truly, God was always with him, but he was lost and departed from his people. Search me, O God, when I'm in the wilderness. And we know that the human heart is a complicated thing. Who's here that's ever gone through marriage prep or marriage counseling or who's had maybe therapy or something like that? You know that you go into those sessions and you, you go in with sort of one talking point. Hey, I need to fix this issue. You'll know if it's a good session or something like that, that you'll often leave with the person who's, who's sort of searching you out, but they actually point out something completely different. Actually, you're not disagreeing about that. This is at the root cause behind all of it. Search. We need to be searched out. Allowing someone into your life to search you, whether it's God or someone loving around you, isn't comfortable at all. Who loves it? Who loves being searched out and found out? Not me. I'm an Enneagram type nine. I flee from conflict. That's my personality trait. It's painful to be found out when we're trying to hide. And we can try to hide from God so often in life. That's why he needs to search us. That's why we need to ask God to search us out. Even David pointed out in, in uh, verse 11 and 12 in the NLT, it says, I could ask for darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night. Maybe this is talking about depression. But even in darkness, I cannot hide from you. Even when we're not seeking God, even when we are hiding from God, he will search us out. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the very first sin, what did they do? They hid. And even when we try to run from this process of God renewing our hearts for the believer, for the love by God, God's going to search us out. Point number two that David says in these closing verses is he says, know my heart or know me. The Hebrew word, again, to look at the Hebrew, is this word yada. And it's so much bigger than belief. Again, it's so much bigger than thinking theoretically about what life and relationship to God might be. It's the experiential truth, the factual truth, not the textbook truth, but actually I've seen it, I've lived it, knowing. That is how David invites God into his heart. And all of Psalm 139, as we've said, is this deep, experienced truth. The next thing he says is, test me. 
If I didn't want to be searched, I definitely don't want to be tested. Who likes to be tested? Who likes to run marathons in this room? I, I know there's one person who put their hand up. You're a weird person who likes to run marathons. They like to be, but there's those people who like to be tested, who like, because at the end of a test like that, you either know you can do it or you know you can't do it. And it always sets you up in the direction of progress if you cope with the test well. In 2 Corinthians 13, helping over to the New Testament, it agrees as well. It says, examine, your, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. David is so keen to experience deeper relationship with God, not just staying at the level that he's in the water, that he's willing to be tested again. Because so far in David's life, God has been faithful and fruitful in the aftermath of every situation. Oh, if we could have that same heart to say, test us, God. In the verse, it says, try me, test me, same thing. It says, try me and know my thoughts. Why is he saying, okay, he said, know my heart, and now he's saying, know my thoughts. I think what David is getting at, I think what the scripture is saying at, okay, know my heart and know my thoughts. As we've said, my heart and my thoughts can sometimes be disconnected. During the trial, sometimes we believe different things. During the trial, sometimes we, we, we take on things that aren't really in our hearts and we put other things on ourselves. David is saying, try me and then see what bubbles up to the surface. Put me in a hard situation, oh God, and then see what's really in the core of me. Because you know when pressure is put upon you that the cracks form, that suddenly the material is shown, the building material in your life is shown for what it is. Does it stand or does it crack? And David knows, he says, know my thoughts out of the trial because he knows that God will ultimately strengthen him because of that trial. Who here has been through a trial that has ultimately strengthened them? Yeah, there's a few hands, but I know there's many more than that. If you truly look back to the trials in your life, you'll see that God wants to use them to secure and build you up just like David. Number four truth that he points out here from these last two verses is find my flaws. Don't like that one either. <laughs> See if there is any grievous way in me. When was the last time you asked God to point out a flaw? When was the last time you noticed God working on something specific inside of you? Sometimes not the happiest time. But we need to be a church of self Biblical, inviting God in to self-examination. One of the ministries that does this the best is Freedom Sessions. We celebrated them a few weeks ago, just before Easter. There's a new class coming up in September. If you want to do a deep dive on what it means to examine yourself and see healing, I encourage you to, to, to ask us about it. Are you asking God to find your flaws? Or are you just looking at the flaws of other people? Are you becoming just more entrenched in your own views and your hard-heartedness or your difficulties with God? Or is God working through them? And then the last thing he points out here in these passages is lead me. Number five, lead me to everlasting life. Lead me to eternal life. And I think the point of this, there's many different ways to look at this process, but unless we are inviting God in, Unless we are believing his truth, unless we are cracking the door open, sometimes we just have the door shut and yes, he has to search us out. That we need to open that door for God to work on us constantly like David. 
In Romans 12, verse 2, it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I think David is on this track as well. This is renewing the heart, renewing the mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. And that's all great. We could name the sermon five processes to get closer with God. Five things that you can do, and no matter what, that uh, God is going to be for you, God is going to heal you, you know, a really catchy clickbait thing. But if you know the story of David, it doesn't always go so easily. Even though David was pure of heart, even though David was after God's heart, he was still ultimately human and not all the way fixed. In Jeremiah 17.9, we've read all the beautiful things about the human heart, but in Jeremiah 17.9, it says this about the heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I believe the answer to that question is God. But what happens, church, when that cycle stops in our lives? The next thing that we're going to look at in David's life happens 15 years, probably 15 years on from when he wrote this passage. Psalm 139 represented a high point. But in 2 Samuel, the next book, 15 years later, David goes wrong in a massive abuse of his power. He takes advantage of a woman. He uses his position to his advantage. And he turns from that heart to a different kind of heart. Let's read. 2 Samuel 11, verses 1 to 5. It says, In the spring of that year, the time when kings go to battle, David sent Joab. So instead of going out to battle, David stayed home and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. And David remained at Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and walked on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Oh, isn't that Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came into him, as if she had a choice, and he lay with her. And then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she, sent David, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. If you know anything, well, I don't know anything about battle, but at least I know that um, when you were sent out to battle in those days, even today, I guess, you're away for long, long periods of time. David was now in this position where he had committed this horrible crime against God, against the, the nation, against everybody, against Uriah, against um, Bathsheba. And David seeks to cover it up. David then calls Uriah back from the battlefield, the husband. He calls the husband back from the battlefield to sort of ask him some phony questions about how everything's going on. And he says, hey, go home for the night. Just go home. You know, you're here. Take a load off. David's expecting that maybe he'll sleep with his wife that night. And maybe he'll think that the son or the daughter is his. But Uriah is too honorable to his men out on the battlefield and instead sleeps on the street. David tries again to lure Uriah back home and cover it up by getting him drunk. But ultimately it's useless and David 
goes further down the rabbit hole and sends the husband to the front of the hardest fighting and then tells his men to withdraw of him so he's killed. David, a man after God's own heart, really? Really? What happens when the cycle stops? What happens when we get too comfortable and when we get too good at the the position that we found ourselves in? The prophet Samuel is sent by God to confront David. And gladly, after David's failing and confrontation and all the earthly consequences that came with what happened, he repented. He was brought low and with his last ounce of strength, he turned to God. And there's another psalm in the Bible, Psalm 51, that tells us what to do when the cycle stops in our life. And if the band could just start coming up. In Psalm 51, we don't have time to read the whole thing, but if you find yourself in this position where you just feel dry, where you just feel lost, where you come to church each and every thing, and the, the, the banner you see at the front of the room is just how you've messed up time and time again. David had two paths that he could have chosen. Like Saul, he could have turned and hardened his heart and said, no God, and resist, and with all human strength, hold on to his position. But David at least was smart enough to know that when confronted, that he had to repent. And repentance, self-realization, turning back to God, it softens this broken heart. In Psalm 51, starting in verse 9, David cries out to God with this, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Lord, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. David repented. David was lost. And the prayer from Psalm 139 at the end of God search me, Guess what? God was still searching for David even when he was lost again. He found him even in the worst circumstance and sent the prophet Samuel to him and ultimately he turned and repented to God. Something that really stuck out to me here in Psalm 51 is verse 13. There's a seeming contradiction between the Psalms. But verse 13 represents a change of heart, a realization of how, to a deeper level, of how good God is. In Psalm 139, you remember that part about the justice? David says, slay them, slay them. Sorry, slay them, kill the people outside the walls who are coming against you. And then in this verse, after David has seen his own failing, Even the best man before God who was chosen, the best amongst his people, the purest of heart amongst his people saw within himself that he himself needed God as much as everybody else. And he turns from slay them to save them. He turns from 
punish them till I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Only people who know the love of God can say that with all intent. Without knowing God's grace in our lives, without knowing what God has done for us, without knowing how messed up we are without Him, we do hate the world outside these walls. But when we know how God, good God has been to us, He shifts that to the New Testament, to what Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We see through these events, although David failed and although we fail, that God grows us and moves us forward. That even though he failed, that the New Testament still talks about David, that he was a man after his own heart. That God's plan is big enough to restore and make clean anything in our lives. See if there is any grievous way in me and lead me. Wasn't that what God was doing with David? Ultimately, it was in the most horrible way. A man died, a marriage was betrayed, a child was lost, horrible things. But ultimately, God brought it back to find any grievous way in me. As we conclude, and I still have just a couple minutes here before we examine our hearts ourselves, I want to ask, and I felt God out of this, just to say, how is our heart doing today? How are our hearts doing today before the Lord? Did the big transforming, did the anointing, did the crowning in your life happen 15 years ago and now we're just turning up to church? Is God working? Is this process happening? Maybe this morning there's been a grievous way that's been highlighted to you. Maybe it's highlighted to you every single week that you come to church and you're in, in this place. For you, I want to say God wants to move you from highlighting the grievous way to being restored to His kingdom. The enemy of you will always use that thing to condemn you. But the God of the universe will point out that thing to bring you back to life. In Proverbs 4.23, it says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And Ezekiel 36, which, Ezekiel 36, which is the promise for us here this morning, the promise of the brokenhearted, for me, there are so many things in my life where that have gone wrong, that I have been the root cause of. And he says this, again, prophesying the coming of the Holy Spirit. It says, I will give you a new heart. Not just a new heart. I will give you a new spirit and I will put within you I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Church, if you feel that you're in that position, if God's highlighting, if you felt cold and hard for a while, I just wanna invite whoever that is, just to, just to humble yourself and, and come pray up the front. We're not already in that position. Maybe you're feeling that and that that thing is terrifying to come up the front and get hands laid on you. But whatever you do, work with those around you. Go to God. Come for prayer. The Holy Spirit wants to fix the brokenhearted today. God is searching you out this morning and He knows your heart better than you know it yourself. 
And like David, He wants to start this cycle again with all of us. So the overflow of the truth, the overflow of the redemption that we know is happening all around this room this morning is worship and praise. We can't worship God without coming from a place of realization of what He's done for us, just like in the Psalm. God's done this, God's done this, God's done this. Therefore, I will worship Him. And God wants to also commend today for those of us who are keeping in step with Him, who are asking Him to search. And some of you, you're in different stages of that cycle of being renewed. Some stages are super, super hard, but they lead to renewal. They lead to renewal because God is a faithful God. And as we'll hear next week with Brian's testimony and as we'll hear in years to, and months to come with more and more testimony, God is good to do it time and time and time again, isn't He, church? Will God ever stop working in your life? No. Will God ever stop working in my life, my family's life, my children's life? No. Before we stand in worship, and Les Debs, you want to add anything? It says in Titus 3 to 4, let's, let's stand as we read the Scripture. It says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, appeared, He saved us, not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of Holy Spirit, whom He poured out to us on us richly through Christ, through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the eternal hope. Lord God, we thank You for what You're doing here today. Lord, we know as we look around a room this size, we know that there are people in every stage of that five-step five circle. There's people here who are asking you to search them, who are asking you to find them. There are people here who are asking you to lead them, Lord God, to everlasting life. There are people here in the middle of a trial and a test and whom you know their thoughts, Lord God. But you know every heart here this morning, Lord God. Nothing is hidden from you. Darkness is as light to you. And you wanna give new hearts, Lord God. Before we start singing, we're just going to ask, Holy Spirit, if you're stuck, if you don't know what to pray, you just pray Psalm 51. Create in me, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Create in me, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David had to cry out. The strength couldn't come from inside of him. It had to come from God. And there are so many dry times. There are so many times in the thickness and the weight of depression where we can't but do anything but say, God, you do it. You bring me to that place. So Holy Spirit, we play pour out on this people today because you are looking for a people after your heart, Lord God. Thank you, Father. Pray for mothers as well. Not just in motherhood, but in this testing of the heart. The tenderness that the women here are today. The future mothers, the mothers who have experienced loss, 
the mothers who are coaching kids through hard times. Lord, would the renewal of these hearts step down from one generation to another generation and bring strength and bring restoration. The crazy thing out of all of this is that Jesus actually comes through the line, I believe, I think I'm getting this right, he comes through the line of Bathsheba. Isn't that crazy? Even in the brokenness, God works. Even in the horrible situation, God says, I know and I'm gonna do something better with it. And Jesus comes through that line, through Bathsheba, down to Mary and Joseph, down to Jesus Christ, and then down to us today. It doesn't matter what has happened. God is gonna use it. It doesn't matter if someone's dead at the end of it. It doesn't matter if there's tremendous loss. God is gonna use it because he's been faithful in everything so far. Let's worship church. You can come to the front if you want and we'll pray for you. If that's too scary, we'll pray for you afterwards when there's a convenient time, or you can reach out to the office. We would love to meet you. Be blessed, church. Thank you.